Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I was telling my friends about the show that just got passed on. They were like, wow, that sounds like such a great idea. And I was like, I know. And then I was telling them another one and they were like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. And I needed the ego boost at the time. So I started like effectively putting on a show like, well, you like that idea. What about this one? And like, I can't believe that didn't sell. And after about, you know, half hour of this, there was actually sort of a crowd around listening to these television ideas. And I was making myself feel great. And after that, one of the organizers, an investment banker came to me and says, hey, can you teach my clients to do what you do? And I was like, well, absolutely not. But (laughs) You know, I I can't tell you how to do reality TV. He's like, no, I don't want you to, nothing to do with TV. I want you to teach my clients how to pitch their ideas to investors without putting them to sleep. Mm. Can you help me do that? And I was like, I, I don't know, but I'd be willing to try. So we had a huge investors conference in Florida. I flew down mm-hmm. and through the course of the three days, he was, you know, presenting about 12 times through over the three days, it got better and better. And so he eventually said like, hey, you got to come. I got to work with you. You got to help me redo, redesign this entire thing. So I did. And it was fun and not, not difficult. I, I, you know, I break down shows all the time. And he left this voice message on my phone and he was like borderline in tears. And he just basically said, you changed my life. You know, my wife thinks you slip something into my drink or something because now I like going on these road shows. I love telling people what I do. My stock is up. Like my life's going to be better because of you. Mm. And I was so moved by that. And no network president had ever said anything like that to me ever. And I, I mean, I make the joke, I'm kind of two steps from being a caveman and my ego drives me a lot. And that became addictive, like having people that I could impact their lives and change the way they delivered their message and seeing the result of that became very intoxicating to me. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Brent, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, excellent. Very excited to be here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually uh, was introduced to you by way of our mutual publisher, and they told me what your book was about, and they sent it to me. And this is one of those books that I sat down and, and read in uh, probably less than two days, if I remember correctly, because there was so much packed into it, and I found it so insightful. But as you know, from having heard the show, before we get into the book, I want to start with what I think is a relevant question, given the nature of your subject matter and um, you know what your work is about, and that is what social group were you a part of in high school, and what impact has that ended up having on you and the choices that you've made with your life and your career? I mean, that's tough because the social group that I thought I was in was probably not the one I was in. I wanted to be much cooler than I really was. And I, and I developed a sort of a, this sort of like happy delusional space where I could tell myself and believe that I was closer with the cool people than I really was. And I could just ignore when they didn't like me. I just pretended that that wasn't happening. I think that sort of carried me through high school with this delusional optimism that really helped later on in life, ironically. Mm. What, uh, what, what do you think people lose that delusional optimism? Because I, I think there's a sort of, you know, sort of distinction between delusional optimism and rational optimism. And I think that sometimes we go from delusional optimism to rational optimism to cynicism uh, as a byproduct of like yeah. experiences. And I well, wonder how you prevent that from happening or how did um, you? 
I think it's good if you, if you develop it as a defense mechanism, then it helps. You can pull that out whenever you need to, because I think what happens is your brain is naturally, you know, like I joke all the time, like it wants to just keep you in the cave so the saber toothed tiger doesn't eat you. And we've been working on that for about 2 million years on how to keep you from really thinking that you can do more than you can. It's always trying to do the opposite and it's easy to fall into that pattern. And I think as a defense, when things don't go well, or when people think that you are foolish or trying too much or that you're not going to be able to make it, you know, if you use as a defense mechanism to keep yourself like going forward, you can sort of use that at any time. And I've I've always sort of had that belief that it's always going to work out. Things are working it's better than it looks and it'll be fine. And that sort of helped the moments when it probably would have been easy to fall into the trap of being sort of cynical on these kind of things and kind of pushed me through, I think. Well, yeah. So it's, it's funny you say that, uh, sort of my dad has this sort of Zen like existence in life. And one of my, you know, we were at the Apple store last night and I was like, yeah, this is the most self-actualized man in the world. Like literally nothing bothers him. And he doesn't read self-help books. He doesn't listen to podcasts. He's barely religious. I mean, he is religious, but like literally the only thing he's stubborn about is going to Costco. Beyond that, he's the most Zen person I've ever met. And, right. you know, to him, it's like, what the hell do you need a therapist for? He's like, why is there anything to worry about? And I was like, why don't I have more of your temperament? Uh, the man is, is you know, I, I envy him for that reason. And I wonder, you know, what is it that leads to this tendency to catastrophize, right? Like when we look at the future, we have all this anxiety about things that we can't control. And we spend so much of our lives trying to control what's uncontrollable. And I mean, you're, you're in an industry by, by its very nature that is uncontrollable and uncertain. And I wonder... You know, how do you navigate that dynamic of uncertainty uh, without losing your mind? Uh, listen, I, you know, I talk a, li- a lot about this. This is a great question is that a lot of people look forward to the future, right? They're plotting and planning and strategizing how they're going to avoid the burling, burning piles of rubble of potential problems in life, right? And that people who are successful, you, me, other people, we've been really good at plotting a strategy around these potential issues that we see, right? It's like, this could go wrong, that could go wrong, what if this happens? And we, we, we're good at plotting our, our course, right? And it was really hard to do that consistently because it's an unknown thing out there. And what I try to teach people and a lot of my clients, I say like, what you really should be doing is actually looking backwards. You should look at the last 10 years of your life, 15 years, five years, whatever it is, and you'll see a pattern of success, of things working out, of you naturally growing. You get smarter, you get more wisdom, you make better decisions. You know, statistically speaking, if you're a mildly successful person, you've been on that trajectory and there's nothing really that you should be looking forward saying like, there's no any, there's any reason that you're going to get off that track. And I think people get too focused on the unknown future and don't put enough stock on their statistical past. You know, it's like a casino in Las Vegas borrows billions of dollars to build another casino based on the past, based on the fact that the roulette wheel, that little ball is going to fall their way 0.2% of the time. And so they don't have to try to predict what it's going to look like. They don't have to do any of that. They, they, they have statistical evidence. Like this is what happens at a blackjack table. Mm-hmm. And your life is a little bit like that, where you can look back and be like, Hey, it, it all seems to get better. Three years ago, I didn't have the same amount of, you know, I didn't have as good relationships. All the things that are better in your life are sitting there for you to believe in. And a lot of people spend all their time looking forward. Yeah. Well, I think the, the question that comes from that is, you know, how do you prevent yourself from letting the past, particularly bad things from the past, dictate the future? And I'll give you a bit more context. This is the most ridiculous example ever. Uh, and I wrote it in a blog post. I think it was about decision making because we had Annie Duke here. And I, I, you know, and I remember telling one of my friends, you know, I had a bad breakup with an Indian girl. And I was like, yeah, that's it. I'm done with Indian women. He said, dude, you can't swear off an entire race, particularly your own. You know? Right. Um, and, but, but I, what I, you know, I think the question is <laughs> particularly own, yeah. from making a permanent decision based on a temporary experience or, you know, to phrase it a bit more differently, how do you let your past inform your decisions of future rather than define them? I think it's important to look at the totality of your past and not incidents, right? And inc- if you look at certain incidents and, and let that shape you, that's obviously going to be a problem. But when you look at the totality of your life and what you've achieved, and I'm not going to say, I don't know people that are destined to have problems in life. They seem to consistently make bad decisions. And, and there are people that are naturally like that. And it's hard to get out of that. But for most people, they have a history overall, when you total it all up, 
that works. And it'd be like, a again, I go back to my casino metaphor. It's like, it's like a casino. If they had one bad hour at the roulette table, they wouldn't change their business model. And if they lost money one night at the black table, they wouldn't change the way they do business because historically speaking, things have gone well. You, you went through school, you went through relationships, you've developed things on a personal, financial, business relationship way that will help you in the future. You just got to put enough stock on your ability to adapt, to adapt to change, to make things happen. And that really helps people in the future when you believe in the good things that have happened in the past. Mm, wow. So I wonder, as somebody who has uh, made your way into the entertainment industry, what was the underlying message that your parents gave you uh, about making your way in the world? Did they encourage this? Uh, you know, this is something I always wonder about creative people because, you know, you come from an Indian family, like telling an Indian parent that you want to make your way in the world as an entertainer or an artist is a bit like saying, oh, here's your permission slip to disown me. Yes. And, you know, like my parents were not like, great, go explore all your creativity and whatnot, especially coming from Canada, where it's like, this is, this was never an option. Mm -hmm. It was more like I had been sacrificing so much. I was living in my parents' basement with my two-year-old child and my new wife. And, you know, we were baroque. I didn't have a job. And, uh, and, and my dad was like, listen, you need to give up this TV thing. You need to go get a job. Like it's over. Get, get, you know, you need to accept that. And so that happens to everybody. And that happened to me all my life, but mostly is because I wasn't in the right place. I hadn't found where I belong and everything was swimming upstream. Everything was batting my head against the wall. I had big ideas. I had big thoughts, but I wasn't in a situation that fit. And when I moved from Canada to the United States, the situation started to fit. And then all this, all of this, all of a sudden the things that I was doing that would, that were swimming upstream was like going with the current, like all of a sudden everything changed. And so my upbringing didn't set me up for that. It was almost the opposite. It, it hardened me to the idea that like it could happen at any moment. I just got to persevere. Right. So, you know, you mentioned you're living uh, in your basement with your wife and, and your kid, uh, your parents' basement. And, and I wonder how do you navigate the complexities of a relationship when you're in that situation? Uh, because, you know, I think in a lot of ways I've used the fact that I was like, okay, I've at moments been financially unstable. I've often let that just be an excuse. Say, okay, I can't start a family. I can't do any of those things until things stabilize. Uh, and my sister was like, you realize people start families with far less than what you have, right? And I was like, yeah, but I don't want yeah. it like that. Um, yeah. I wonder how you navigate that dynamic from a relationship standpoint, because I, you know, I have a friend who says he's convinced that anytime he hits a financial setback, a woman will leave him. Right. Well, listen, again, it's the, for me, it was this delusional belief that everything's going to work out, that I am one turning one corner away from all the things that I picture happening, happening. And that the things that are happening that are causing me, you know, pain, grief, problems, that those things are temporary and that I just need to get through those elements because on the other side is where I'm supposed to be. And I think I carried that through my relationships and it's a little infectious, you know, when you, when you really push that. Now, the problem, of course, is that that only the spell of that can only last for so long. And I had actually taken my relationship right to the very edge where it was like, I came back from Los Angeles after selling the show to NBC and meeting all these huge major players in entertainment that no one has ever heard of before because they're not famous people. Mm -hmm. And I could see the look in my wife's in my, my wife's face and my parents, they were just like, Oh really? Like again with the, now things are different. Like, Oh, it's all going to change. Like I'd use that phrase i'd use those those chips those markers so many times that it was hard for them to buy into it and it wasn't until you know the contracts show up and we're moving to los angeles where it was like oh wow like i guess we are moving to the next level so there's a little balance between you know hop on the train i'm going to take you for a ride yeah. and getting to the point where it's like oh man like i'm only in it doing my own thing and dragging everybody else with me this is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. I guess, you know, it, like to my friend's point about this sort of feeling of, you know, somebody will leave you. Did you ever feel that she was going to leave or like moments where it was like just put to the test for like, okay, this is a breaking point? Um, Yeah, because I expected... I expected to be ex- people to be excited when I was excited and to buy into my vision. And in our in our relationship, I had discounted the times early in our relationship that 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 had happened where she had done that with me. And you know, we had moved from our hometown to to start a bar and restaurant in the middle of Canada. And you know, that was like a leap of faith. We just did that as a new newlywed couple, and we and it went horribly wrong. And we ended up getting rid of it and having to move back home. But when I really wanted that level of excitement to be like, I finally made it, even though I kind of hadn't made it yet, but I felt like I had finally turned the corner. Yeah. I wanted her there. And in her mind, she was kind of like, I have been there at every single turn that didn't work. You can't expect me to get up every single time. And so that was hard to not be a little resentful about that. And had it not worked, had our move to the Los Angeles not worked, had things got happened, we wouldn't have been able to survive it. There's no way. Hmm. So uh, speaking of the, the move to Los Angeles, uh, I mean, it's really a lot of people come to LA with this idea of entertainment and there's probably no more desirable career with, you know, no worse odds. I think, you know, I, I, yeah. if you, uh, you've just written a book, I've written a book with the same publisher. And I remember when I asked my editor, I said, what are the odds of this? Mainly because I just wanted to prove to my dad that it was harder than getting into medical school. <laughs> But, you know, right. the Indian kid ego thing that I needed to like, you know, that was my insecurity that I needed to alleviate. 
And she said like one in 5,000. And, you know, and that to me was like, wow, those are, those are not very good odds. Like one in 5,000 people makes it into your office for a book deal. And I'd imagine in your industry, it's even less. Oh yeah. Yeah. So far less. What is it in your mind? And I know chances are, if you had the true answer to this question, you'd probably be a billionaire, but what is it that distinguishes the person who persists to get to where you're at or get past the thousands of rejections to actually get to the point where they're like, okay, I've done, I'm going to make a living at this and be successful at it. Yeah. You know, it, it's a strange answer, but I think it's, it's almost, I would classify it as intuition a little bit in the sense that there's a difference between self-doubt and situational doubt. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're very similar. They sound similar in your mind, but they're very different. You know, self-doubt is self-limiting. It's that, is that it's telling you that you're not qualified, that you don't know enough, that you need, you need to have a little more success. You need to know a few more people. You need to, you know, be better before you'll be, you can do it. And that's just, that's just sort of self-limiting. Whereas situational doubt is self-preserving. And it, it's what tells you that this is not the right path. Uh, starting a restaurant on this location is, is not, you know, likely to succeed, or this isn't the right business partner to be in business with, or, you know, I can put a lot of work here and I won't be rewarded. Like there's a lot of those decisions that you don't notice day to day mm-hmm. that you have this sort of intuition of what's going to work out. What's a good place to put your energy, what relationships can lead to something. And I think that in entertainment, because the stakes are so high that you need to be able to adjust and understand where to put your focus. One, you got to have the skill and the creativity. There's all of that crap, of course, but it's, recognizing earlier which relationships, which people, which which angle, where your skills are best used, how you're going to be valued, and being able to position yourself in that form is super valuable. And I see so many people come to Los Angeles and want to get an entertainment and they put so much energy and effort and expense and their lives into something that just can't work, that just won't get on TV, that won't get the meetings, that won't get made. And that's not just a creative thing. That's also a listening to the situational doubt that's around there. Mm-hmm. So you can tell this type of project or these type of people or whatever it is, is going to be too hard. And I think that the people that develop that intuition and that understanding tend to do better, particularly in enter- entertainment. Yeah. Well, I mean, entertainment is, is, uh, is such an interesting space right now because I, I think that, you know, I, I spoke with a large media company. They invited me to come in and I said, you know, like what you guys are experiencing is a complete fragmentation of the media landscape. And the situation you're in right now is the power that was once only in the hands of people like you with unlimited resources and, you know, huge bank accounts is now in the hands of people like we, with me, like me with limited resources, but unlimited resourcefulness and imagination because of, of the tools that we have at our disposal. Uh, and I wonder, you know, uh, from your experience, what have you seen uh, as the impact of that sort of democratization on the industry as a whole? I mean, it's so hard to quantify, right? Because everything changes so quickly. And the truth is, like, in entertainment and what we do is so outside the box of, like, metrics and data and things that actually make sense. Right. So let me preface that. So we live and die by numbers. We live and die by ratings. We live and die by budgets, all of those things. But none of us really understand how any of those things happen. It's like creating a product that you don't know how to deliver to people. You've got everything in place and then you don't know if they're going to watch it or not. And if anybody could actually predict in entertainment what was going to be successful, you know, they'd be massively successful. It's just really hard to do. So it's, we play catch up so much. We are chasing our tails so much in entertainment. And that's why you see these huge creative lulls with people and in the industry itself, because it's not because like we're, we're addicted to doing the same thing. It's like, we just don't know what else works. Mm-hmm. And it's become really hard to sort of see that future. Yeah. Um, and I think that as everything spreads out and gets more difficult and ratings get smaller, it just, it's causing it's like adding heat to like an anthill. Everybody's moving faster and it's more chaotic and we're trying more things and there's more streamers and it just becomes very difficult to pinpoint what's next. Yeah. Well, I think that that makes a, a really perfect segue to the content of the book, The Three Minute Rule. I mean, you have sold hundreds of movies and, you know, TV projects. And uh, so where did, how did the, the three, what was the, the origin of, of this whole idea of The Three Minute Rule? Like, where did it, you know what? 
it's it's funny because I was at a I just had a, a an offsite with one of the networks and I had some projects in contention and they got passed on. And I was pretty sad. And I was at this hotel lobby uh, having drinks with friends and there was a weird convention going on. You can tell when people who aren't from our LA are in LA, you can tell just by the way they're dressed and whatnot. And there was a bunch of suits there that, that didn't look like LA people. And I was, you know, I was telling my friends about the show that just got passed on. They were like, wow, that sounds like such a great idea. And I was like, I know. And then I was telling them another one and they were like, oh my God, that sounds amazing. And I needed the ego boost at the time. So I started like effectively putting on a show like, well, you like that idea. What about this one? And like, I can't believe that didn't sell. And after about, you know, half hour of this, there was actually sort of a crowd around listening to these television ideas. And I was making myself feel great. And after that, one of the organizers, an investment banker came to me and says, hey, can you teach my clients to do what you do? And I was like, well, absolutely not. But (laughs) You know, I I can't tell you how to do reality TV. He's like, no, I don't want you to, nothing to do with TV. I want you to teach my clients how to pitch their ideas to investors without putting them to sleep. Mm. Can you help me do that? And I was like, I don't know, but I'd be willing to try. So we had a huge investors conference in Florida. I flew down. I sat in on one of these presentations from an oil and gas company to about 18 different you know, high level investors and institutional investors. And it was the worst thing I'd ever seen. I felt so bad for the guy. It was so torturous. Yeah. And he was up there for 20 some odd minutes. I had no idea what his company did or why it was interesting or why anybody would buy the stock. And, you know, after it's like, nobody puts up their hand, nobody asks questions. And it was just, it was so painful. And so I started to work with him and I, you know, I helped him just in the basic idea of like, hey, well, here's how you say this a little Here's what was really valuable that I got out of your pitch, but you said that at about at about 13 minutes in. Let's move that up a little bit. And and I looked at it a little bit like I would pitch a TV show. Here's the idea. What's the best thing of value about your company? Okay, here, let me show you how to explain that. Mm-hmm. And through the course of the three days, he was, you know, presenting about 12 times through over the three days, it got better and better. And so he eventually said, like, hey, you gotta come. I gotta work with you. You gotta help me redo redesign this entire thing. So I did. And it was fun and not, not difficult. I, I, you know, I break down shows all the time and he left this voice message on my phone and he was like borderline in tears. And he just basically said, you changed my life. You know, my wife thinks you slip something into my drink or something because now I like going on these road shows. I love telling people what I do. My stock is up. Like my life's going to be better because of you. Mm. And I was so moved by that. And no network president had ever said anything like that to me ever. And I, I mean, I make the joke, I'm kind of two steps from being a caveman and my ego drives me a lot. And that became addictive, like having people that I could impact their lives and change the way they delivered their message and seeing the result of that became very intoxicating to me. Well, let's get into the the framework itself. And I'm going to go about this in an incredibly selfish way and use it for <laughs> own purposes, but uh, you basically go into this concept and, you know, of the three minute rule and you say, you know, simplicity is power, clarity is compelling, information is value. And then you talk about misconceptions and the rationalization story. So let's start with the misconceptions and the rationalization story, because I think that you actually go into the other three bullet points throughout the rest of this, which I have like this massive mind map of. So um, let's start I love that. with uh, the misconceptions and the rationalization story. Yeah. You know, the big thing is misconceptions now is that if I make it simple, if somebody gives you 20 minutes to do a talk, you're going to talk for 20 minutes. And the misconception is, is you need to wow them with dazzling, you know, graphs, statistics, you know, amazing graphics, things that sort of the bells and whistles that make everything count. That's the only way to get noticed. Mm -hmm. And it's actually the complete and total opposite. People are so sensitive and they've been so over marketed to, and they, they're so savvy about the way the world is that nobody wants to be sold anything and they don't want to be impressed and they don't want a bunch of flair and they're not super interested in your opinions. What they're interested in is facts and information. Tell me what it is. Tell me how it works. Uh Tell me how I can get it. Like that's really where we're at right now. And so I have a great exercise where I have people, you know, in one of my keynotes, I'll have an entire audience, like just picture and answer the question why you drive the car you drive. Why did you choose that model? Why do you drive it? What does it do for you? And then all those answers go one step deeper. Why is that important? Why do you care about the price? Why do you care about gas mileage? Why do you want it? Whatever it is, uh-huh. you ask for five or six questions about that. And then you listen to your answers. You realize that you just rationalized one of the biggest purchases in your life 
in in minutes, in simple phrases, in easy to understand statements that don't have a bunch of flair. There's not a bunch of adjectives. There's not a bunch of buildup. It's very simple, clean information. And we, as human beings, rationalize every single decision we make, whether it's what you have for breakfast or whether you kill your wife or whether we go to war or whatever it is, you rationalize that decision. And what you'll hear is, as you think about those decisions, it's so clean and clear to yourself. You only use the number of words that's needed to get the message across to yourself. Mm. And so what I try to teach in the three minute rule is how to build a pitch or presentation that mimics that, that rationalization story so that the way you explain it is the way they're going to explain it. Not only to themselves, but in today in a world of decision by committee, how they uh, explain I- it to somebody else. So you go into this idea of bullets, and I remember this very distinctly because every I had thought about it through all the various book projects that I've struggled to get my publisher to buy. Um, so you talk to me about this idea of bullets because I remember looking at this like, okay, I need to do this for everything. And then when we get into the actual whack method, I'm going to use it in a very selfish way for an example. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the bullet points is just an is a great exercise to simplify things. And what I'll take people through is you have to take a set of post-it notes and a and a marker and in no more than three words, write down all of the points and the simple statements that make up the value of what you do or what, what, like, what service you offer, what you're trying to convey, what the information is you're trying to convey. How do you lay it out in just simple bullet points? If you do that, what you're going to find is you can see the story right in front of you. And I have a great exercise where I bullet point a television show that you've never even heard of. And I've got 25 bullet points and I can have anybody pitch me back the television show. They know exactly what that show looks like in 25 bullet points. And I do it with companies. I have a a client and I lay out, again, 20 bullet points of what their company does. And they're a plumbing contractor that no one's ever heard of. And there's nobody that hasn't been able to tell me exactly what the company does and why it's valuable just on those bullet points. And what it does is it helps segment the pieces of information so that you're really seeing where they fit and what they mean and what's valuable. And then as you, you know, as you alluded to, the sort of the whack method that I use, the four questions helps categorize those bullets and you build those into what I call statements of value. Mm-hmm. So now you can see like, okay, this is the information that I need to convey. I just need to get someone else to understand my idea the way I understand it. Yeah. And when you start in the, sim- in the most simple form, it all becomes to, to be clear. Okay. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So I want to actually take that and use a, a practical example. Um, we're planning a conference, as I was telling you right before we hit record here. Uh, tickets are, are on sale now. And so I was wondering how I might take this concept and apply it either to the conference, to our podcast, or even to my next book idea. But let's start with the conference, because I could probably take that and extract all the lessons from it and yeah. other things. Well, you know, in, in the way I would do that is, again, we're, we look at the simple statements of what it is, right? So the WAC method, W-H-A-C, is sort of a way to categorize your information and put it in the right order. So I start with the question, what is it? So from your perspective, you got to answer, like, what is the conference? Mm-hmm. and and the next one is, how does it work, right? So in that case, I'd be like, okay, what is the value of the conference? What are you going to be doing there? What, how does it work? How does your conference work? Is it speakers? Is it a bunch of speakers? What's the marketing of it? Like, what's the reason that people are going to be there? What is the actual piece of it? No, I don't want to, I don't want to hear why it's going to be great. I don't want to hear what I'm going to get out of it. I don't want to hear, you know, details of like specials and the prices and all of that stuff. We're, we'll get to that. What people want to know is, what is it and how does it work? Before they can make any decision, if they're going to engage further or be interested, right. they're going to conceptualize, which is step one, which is what's the concept. Mm-hmm. They're going to contextualize, which is how does this work for me? Yeah. And then they're going to actualize. And it's like, okay, how do I actually get it? Mm-hmm. So from your perspective in a conference, it's pretty easy. Like you need to just lay out what are the value of this conference? What are you going to do? How long is it? How many days? What are you, what are you proposing? All of those things you lay out in bullets, and then you can start to answer the, the first two questions. What is it and how does it work? Mm. And then Sorry, after you've got that piece, right, then I'd look at what we call the are you sure moment, which is what are your facts, your figures, your logic, your reason, right? Well, like how many, you know, how, how good are the speakers? You know, what have they done in their lives? Like, then you can talk about what the relevance is to your audience. Mm. And then the last step is like, oh, and by the way, costs $89 or 150 or whatever it is. And here's how you get there. Like, because if they buy into the other pieces, if, if you tell me about your conference and I understand where it is, when it is, why you're doing it, what it's going to give me Mm -hmm. and how it fits for me, then it's like, okay, now I can decide. And I will put value to the price, to the time I got to take out of my life to go do that, where I'm going to take this information. Like all that stuff becomes more relevant in that case. So let's do one more. Let's use the podcast itself as an example. So, you know, it, it's funny because I think to me, many of these things have emerged naturally through trial and error over 10 plus years of doing Unmistakable Creative. Uh, but if we were to take Unmistakable Creative and run it through this framework, what would that look like? Let's say that you and I were working together, like I was one of your clients and you were just, you know, you said, okay, Strini, what are we going to, how are we going to explain this to your audience? Because I, part of me wonders yeah. at times, like, okay, do this, could we have a much larger audience? Would it be clearer? And would people know exactly what they were getting to the point where they would go and tell other people? Um, and I can tell you this from, yes, we've been doing a rebrand. You know, we started out as a podcast for bloggers called Blogcast FM. And often our reviews would say, this is about far more than blogging, but many people didn't tell other family members simply because we were misbranded. Right. And it's, and, and, and that's a tough thing. So I would say, let's look at your podcast, right? If you were to explain what it is mm-hmm. and the like and I, I always joke about the twitter like you know not the fat twitter line that they now 240 characters or whatever but if you had to explain it in a log line a yeah. couple of sentences of what it is and how it works what would that be what's the core of what you offer in the unmistakable creative i think it's uh conversations with insanely interesting people from every walk of life Okay. So I would be starting to bullet those pieces out, right? Like it's conversations, it's interesting people, all walks of life. Right. And then it's like, but okay. So, and what do you do in that creative element when you're interviewing that's different than other podcasts or interviews? What do you do that's different? What's unique in that side of it? 
I think we get them to tell stories that they've never shared with other people. Great. Okay. So like I, in two questions, I can already see more about the way this can be described than it is now. It's like, okay, the sto- you know, it's stories they don't tell anybody else. It's a depth that we, you know, that you don't find other places. So now you're starting to find where the real value is. Mm-hmm. And if you were building a log line on, on based on that, then I might be like, I might be going even deeper where it's like, how do you get them to tell those stories? Like, where does that come from? And, and why are they doing that with you? Mm. Well, I think it's if part, a big part of it is asking the kinds of questions that lead to those stories, because what I understood from, you know, many of the people that I'm talking to is that human beings are naturally hardwired to not only listen to stories, but if you ask the right questions in such a way that the only way, so, you know, the social group in high schools, I and mean, there's only one way you could answer that question for you. And that's by telling the story. Right. And that's, so as you see, like when you start to get one level deeper, now you're into sort of like explaining stuff. Uh-huh. I would, I would dial it back again and be like, okay, it's story, you know, it's story based. It, it's the way we learn things. Like I would go back to those bullets again of why is that excellent for you? Why do you do that? Well, what is it about your interview techniques? What is like, are you curious? Like the things that make that next thing is like the way you interview is another piece of value. So that way you're not end up running on into a, into a bunch of thoughts that are good and they're valuable. And the way we tell stories and the way we listen to stories is absolutely correct. But to get there where I put value on that, I have to understand that you're going to be interviewing, you know, fascinating people about things in their life. They're going to tell you stories that they don't tell other people because you ask questions in a way that other people don't ask questions. And that makes you unique. Now, if you phrase that, those three or four sentences cleanly and, and clearly. Now I start to understand the value of what you do and why it's different and how it works. And then we can start looking at the next sort of paragraph effectively of the nuances like you were just getting into. Yeah. Nuances of how we tell the story, the way we understand things, the way we learn things, and that's what you do in the podcast. Uh-huh. And I think that flow would help tremendously. Interesting. All right. So let's take that and translate it into what you call, you know, statements of value and information and engagement. Um, you know, how do you connect the dots here? Well, I think it's, and that's one of the biggest things I, I find people have a struggle with is the difference between information and engaging. Yeah. And because you live like, listen, you live with your information or your podcast or your next book, you live with it so closely that it's really important to you. And you understand the value of every single element, but your audience doesn't yet. And what you want to do is you want to build from your bullet points in these statements of value, which are a little bit more robust statements that make you what you're selling come alive a little bit so that's when we're talking about your podcast where it's like i you know the guests tell stories that you wouldn't hear anywhere else that's a great statement of value right Mm -hmm. and so as you build that that's that's something i need to understand as an audience before i understand or value the types of guests you have what kinds of questions or what kind of stories they're going to get into why the storytelling that you do in this podcast is more compelling if i understand the basics so that's what engagement means. It means this might not be something you might be able to pitch somebody in a log line mm-hmm. or the first two minutes or whatever, or three minutes. It's what gets you to the next engagement. So if I'm a listener, now I'm, I'm at the point where I'm going to start clicking around and reading more stuff, right? Because that's what you're looking to do mm-hmm. is you're looking to connect with people, have them read or see or hear something about your podcast that makes them go, hmm, okay. I'm interested in that. Let me go find out some more. That's where they go listen to a, one of your podcasts. That's where they go read one of your blog posts. That's the next phase. And I think that that's been the two phases of of the way you sort of influence someone have been blended together lately. And mm-hmm. people believe that their marketing efforts can win the day. And it's like, no, move your objective smaller. You just want someone to be interested enough in your podcast to listen to a little bit of an episode to go to the website, to poke around a little bit. Like that's your first and foremost goal. And marketing like today is, seems to be biting off more than it can chew. Mm, I love that. All right. So we've got a couple of ideas here, right? You talk about your core three minutes, the hook, the edge, and using your negatives and and all that. So, you you know, in the core three minutes, you talk about the fire fire alarm test and not being too literal. What are those? So in the core three minutes, you know, what I'm trying to do is help people use some Hollywood storytelling techniques to lead their audience so that they're not starting with big objective statements of promises that they're trying to prove, right? I'm trying to get them to lead their audience naturally. So what I use the fire alarm test is kind of a fun thing. And it actually happened to me. It was a real story where I was at MTV 
was pitching a show. I thought it was going well. And the fire alarm went off and we had to evacuate the building. So everybody's out in the parking lot. There's probably a thousand people out there. And the president of the network who was in the pitch decided when we got all clear to go back into the building that they didn't need to go back in. He didn't want to go back in. And I was like, oh my God, like I didn't capture his attention or, or give him enough information to make him want to come back in and hear the rest. And I had all this great information that I was saving and I had this cool reveal and I was going to build this great idea. And he was just like, yeah, I don't need to hear anymore. And if somebody else asked about my pitch, he would have been like, Meh, whatever. So I do this test where it's like, if you only had three minutes and you were speaking and telling and pitching your idea or making your presentation and the fire alarm went off and everybody left the building, when the fire marshal said it was clear and you can go back in, is anybody going to want to go back in and hear more? A. And B, do they have enough information at that point to relay it to someone else? And if you have information and really core points that don't make it in those first three minutes, it's too late. And so then I have people back up and do it at the two minute mark and the one minute mark. So you can see like leading your audience with information to the value is super important. So you talk about um, what you call the butt funnel. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by that? Okay, so <laughs> it's funny because I talk about what's called the hook and the edge, right? The hook yeah. is something about your, your story or your business product or service. That's your favorite thing. It's the thing that means the most to you. And a lot of people want to start with their hook and say, you know, like I, with Bar Rescue is a perfect example, is the hook of Bar Rescue was John Taffer is the Gordon Ramsay for nightclubs and bars, right? That's the hook. Um, Gordon Ramsay, a massive celebrity, huge hit, and I've got the next Gordon Ramsay. And traditionally, you might be tempted to start that pitch or presentation with that. Hey, everybody, good news. I've got the next Gordon Ramsay. The problem is in today's world, we're so hypersensitive that we reject those. Anything, any of those big promises, those big statements is like you're met with doubt. So I would have been pitching the network and the entire time they would have been judging to see like, could this guy really be the next, you know, Gordon Ramsay? I don't think so. So what I teach is the hook of your pitch or presentation is something that your audience is led to. And you almost don't need to say it because by the time I've explained how the show works, how we're doing it, John Taffer's background the network president literally said in the meetings, like, wow, so he could be our Gordon Ramsay, right? Yeah. Whereas the edge is something in your story that the audience wouldn't have thought of. It's that thing that pushes it over the edge. And, and the butt funnel is with the edge of Bar Rescue. And so what happens is I'm in, the, I'm in the meeting and John pulls out this big blueprint. And he says, every time I design a bar, I use science. And one of the best pieces of science in a bar is the butt funnel. You can imagine the look on the network's faces, but he pulls out this amazing blueprint and he shows you that in a bar, people take a natural loop. They run around sort of the, the outside and they see where people are and they see what's going on. And you have this almost like a track that people go on. And John designs what's called a butt funnel where he puts furniture and, and a way that two people can't walk through the bar area at side by side. They have to actually turn sideways to fit. And when people turn sideways, their butts touch and you funnel them in this one area where they turn sideways and their butts touch each other. And when men and women touch more and their butts touch, that releases endorphins. And when they release endorphins, they have a better time. When they have a better time, they stay longer. When they stay longer, they drink more. When they drink more, the bar makes more money. And so that was the story. That was the moment where, the, where my audience, my network presidents were like, oh my God this is a TV show. And it was like, yeah, you see, like this guy's more than just loud, obnoxious, crazy yelling. He is a scientist of bars. He's the Gordon Ramsay of nightclubs. And so I asked my clients, like, what's your butt funnel? What's that one story? What's that one item? What's that one thing that your audience wouldn't know, yeah. wouldn't maybe think of that puts it right over the edge? It's interesting. It's, it's so interesting. So you know, we had this like brief sort of, um, flirtation with the idea of unmistakable creative as a TV show. Like one of our, our listeners was a C, an ad agent at CAA who actually contacted me and said, Hey, if you want to talk about this. So we shopped it around. Uh, and it makes me wonder like how I would have done the pitch differently having talked to you because you know, the feedback we got was basically, we don't want to make a star. We want somebody who is already as one. Right. Well, and listen, the best you can do, 
right, is you're, is to get someone to understand the information that you have, the pitch, the presentation, whatever it is, uh-huh. as clean and clearly and as close to the way you understand it as possible. Now, the reality is that your customer might be like, no, this doesn't fit for my audience. Like it doesn't work. Or somebody else might be like, no, it doesn't work for my network, which happens all the time, or it doesn't fit. And that's okay, right? It doesn't have to be right all the time. So I think it's important to be like, the best case scenario is that you get the information clean and clear so they understand it. Because if you don't, not only are you facing the idea that it might not be right for them, but they might not even understand it. Yeah. And if you could imagine, like that's the worst scenario you could be in. So you talk about using our negatives, right? Weakness is a strength in the always lost moment. How do you do that and yet not lose the confidence of an audience when you do that? Well, I think first you go with the idea that if it was really a negative, if it was really that bad, you wouldn't be there, right? Like if you didn't believe in your idea enough and the, and the issue, like when I ask somebody, what do you hope your audience doesn't find out? If the answer is so bad that it's going to derail everything, then you wouldn't be there. So you've got to understand that the negative side of what you're looking at or why people would pass or why they wouldn't be interested isn't that serious. And in the book, I tell the story of John Bon Jovi, who I did this television show with, and he's going to star in it. And the idea is that what would life be like for John Bon Jovi? if he wasn't a rock star, like what, what, what job might he have done and what would his life look like today? Well, in the show, we're going to take him and put him in that situation so he can, and feel it. Right. And we were very excited about it. It was a big announcement. Everybody was talking about it. And John asked me to breakfast and I was so excited to have breakfast with John Bon Jovi. I'm such a huge fan. This is so cool. And we sit down, we're pitching the show tomorrow. And he looks at me and he says, Hey, listen, this show doesn't work for me. It's like, I don't think we can do it. And I was so devastated. And I was so nervous. And he was just like, I would never have been anything but a rock star ever. And we're trying to pretend like I'd be a landscaper. It's like, I would never be doing that. And this is ridiculous. So what I need you to do is I need to find something else. And I was, I had no idea what I could do. I, I was like, we're pitching tomorrow. So instinctively, I was just like, well, we're just going to have to have this conversation because I didn't believe that I was going to be able to solve it, but I needed to do whatever I could to get John Bon Jovi in the room. Yeah. And so in the room at ABC, our very first pitch, I said, here's the problem. John would have never been anything but a rock star. We're building this idea that, you know, he could be a landscaper, but he's never really done that. I don't think he would ever do that. So I think this could be a big problem. And he talked to Lenny Kravitz and they all feel the same way. Big, huge, major movie, movie, movie and music stars. Most of them would never have done anything different. And the network was literally like, well, we can solve that problem. Here's the way I think this might work. And they were part of the pro like part of the solution and not part of the problem anymore. Mm -hmm. So I teach my clients a lot of times to be like, okay, what do you hope your audience doesn't find out? What are those first questions that are issues? Let's have a look at that. And then I tell them to like embrace that. And it shows confidence. If I, when I walk into a room pitching a network and I say, I'm not sure I can get the casting right on this show because it's very narrow and if we don't get the right cast, this whole show doesn't work. Hmm. Like, do you think the network goes, oh, well, then never mind. I don't want to do right. it. Right. They go, well, wait a second. Like, maybe a, a, if we had just an average cast, couldn't we do this? Right. Yeah. And not only does it show that I've thought about these things, but I have confidence in it. But it's that we're, we're all part of the solution. I'm not trying to hide something. And there is no version where your audience doesn't know your issues. They are looking for strings. They are looking with doubt from the second it happens. So it's better you bring it up than they bring it up on their own. Yeah. Wow. All right. So you have these last two parts, uh, which are the opening, the callback and ending, and this idea of red lipstick. Um, and in the opening callback and ending, you talk about the reason for being on the callback. What are those and how does this apply for us? The reason for being is sort of the way I get people to understand uh, the story behind how they got there, right? Like that's the origin story that helps. And I, and I use when I'm on stage, I'll use the example of like, why does Bambi's mom in Bambi have to die right at the very beginning? Like the rest of the entire movie has nothing to do with Bambi's mom. But what it does, it gives you the reason for being. It says, okay, here's how you're supposed to feel. Here's what you're supposed to understand before I get into this story, before I tell you what's actually happening. And what happens is people then have a, they have like a, what a persuasion is where they start to feel a certain way. So I always tell people to use your reason for being in the callback is the, in, in two parts. One is when did you know the idea 
was something real? Like what made you and gave you that idea? How did you get in this room today? Like when did you decide you wanted to do this podcast or that you wanted to build this community, right? And that story origin leads you to then explaining what it is. But also it gives you an option for a callback. And if you've ever seen a stand-up comedy routine, you know that they always call back to certain jokes, right? Mm-hmm. And the callback then is, when did you know this idea was great? And if I was pitching your TV show based on this podcast, it'd be like, what did you decide, what happened to you to make you decide to do this podcast? And why did you want to do these kind of interviews? And then in the callback, after I explained what it is and what the show might look like, I'd say, you know, when did you know you were on something? When did you hit that first big creative mark? When did you get that email from somebody that that changed the way you looked at your podcast? When did you hit the big number? Like, when was the success at a level where you realized you were onto something. And those two pieces are really powerful in a storytelling narrative. Uh, well, it's funny you mentioned the email because I literally have an email that is in my first book from the guy who told me, he's like, you're an average writer, but you're a much better interviewer. And I think you should take this little interview series and spin it out into a separate site. And that's literally how the podcast started. Well, and by the way, that's a great story. And if you were going to pitch me the idea of doing your co- podcast, sponsoring your podcast, listening to your podcast, whatever, that's a good origin. That's a good reason for being. Why are you here? And then you tell that little story sets up. Just even hearing you say it in one sentence, I'm sort of like, oh, you're a better interviewer than you. Oh, really? Like, I kind of want to now, now I'm ready to understand what you're talking about, about your interview-based podcast. Because you've kind of set me up to understand, like, I already know it's an interview-based podcast now. And I know that you like have other things going and this now becomes your core skill basically is what you've just, you basically said like you have one really great skill and it's interviewing people so much so that people told you not to do anything else and get into this. It's like, okay, tell me about your podcast now. Wow. Uh, so I, I have a few more, more questions for you. Uh, one, my sense is that people aren't going to just suddenly listen to this and go out and start, you know, uh, pitching million dollar pitches. Uh, you know, just because they've heard you do this, my guess is this takes practice. How do you get better at it? Um, it's not even practice of the pitching itself. It, that really isn't difficult and it doesn't really matter how you say it, the language you use, what you dress, none of that stuff matters. What's important is, is that you start to be able to look at information and process it differently. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a little bit of practice, but what you'll find is you'll start doing it in, in, in all areas of your life. You'll start to, to weed out the fluff not be repetitive. You're going to say what needs to be said and not just what you want to say. And when you start to see that, and when you start to break down ideas, it becomes very, very natural. So listen, the book does a a relatively good job of laying out a really good framework of how to put any pitch or presentation through this filter. And you can basically create one from scratch that way. But what is cool is that you, you'll see that in your general day-to-day conversation and how it works. It's funny because I like, I'm looking at this thinking, I was like, I feel all the various places that I could apply this to, like writing an online dating profile, you know, uh, to pitching investors. I mean, even, you know, we just raised our first round of, of seed investment. And I remember a friend told me, he said, go to Y Combinator's website. They have a pitch deck template. Just fill that out and you'll be fine. And I think what struck me about it was how simple it was. Like it was six slides and that was it. Uh, yeah, that's exactly, I mean, that exactly right. Where it's like, cause you know what they want? They just want to know what is it? How does it work? Are you sure about that? Okay. And how, do, how am I going to get into it? Like, that's it. They don't want all your fluff and your detail. Like they just don't want that. They get that. They understand those things. And you got to give those audience credit on all that kind of stuff because they get it. And mm. that's why those things are so simple. You can pitch million and billion dollar ideas in six slides because those kind of people understand that kind of stuff. Yeah. Wow. All right. So I have two final questions for you. We were kind of talking about this at the beginning think before we hit record here. You've been in the entertainment industry for some time. You've been successful. And, you know, I was talking about this idea of mastery over metrics. And I feel like we have kind of done a reverse, particularly with a lot of young people who are obsessed with this sort of idea of celebrity. And it's sort of fake celebrity, right? Like I, I saw some in somebody's Instagram handle, they had probably one of the funniest quotes I've ever seen. They're like, you know, being famous on Instagram is like having lots of money and monopoly. Uh, yeah, exactly. And so I, I wonder as somebody who is in this industry, what is your view on all of that? Do you see that happening? Does it, do you see like a sort of decline in craft and much more sort of a prioritization of attention over mastery? You know, I think that is a general perception. And I used to be 
sort of on that page, but I've spent a lot of time in the YouTuber Instagram sort of world. And now I kind of understand like how they really do stuff. And it's kind of amazing because what you realize that the audience is sophisticated across every genre and every platform. So if you're famous on Instagram, you actually have developed some sort of mastery to get there because it is really hard to do. And I've spent a lot of time with people who are very, very popular. And the imagery is a little bit like there's a lot of fluff there. But when you look at the level of work they have to do and the commitment to the, to I'll say craft, it's really difficult. And I'm changing my view on how much work and effort and mastery, as you say, it takes to be really popular in anything, anywhere. Because I think the days of you could just be popular on Instagram or YouTube and and just for the sake of being popular because you're pretty is like really, really hard and it's hard to maintain. So I think people at the beginning today, they think that there might be an easy way to do that. But anybody with any notoriety in any way mm-hmm. has learned probably the hard way that it's a ton of work and you got to be really, really good at what you do. And I, I did an interview with King Batch, who's a comedian on Instagram. And after sitting with him, I was like, he spends, he sounds more like a professor at a university than he does an internet comedian, right? Like he has studied the craft, not only of being funny, but studied the craft of how to deliver his message in short bits to an audience that has a, an incredibly small attention span in one platform. And to be able to do that to 22 million people and have a million views on every video and continue to grow is really, really difficult and requires exceptional mastery. Hmm. I love that. Um, I love that because I think you've made a point that it's not the attention that is, is leading to that. It's the actual work that is leading to the attention. Yeah. And that's, listen, it's, it's an evolving piece, right? Obviously when social media started, people were famous just because they were there. Yeah. Um, but it's just a much more sophisticated medium now because People know that PewDiePie makes $30 million a year. So who wouldn't want to be PewDiePie? Mm. Guess what? Being PewDiePie, really hard to do. Like really, really hard to do. And the guy's got an exceptional level of skill and he's the best in the world at what he does. And so he's being rewarded for that. And there's no way to be the next PewDiePie or Logan Paul or Amanda Cerny without being the very best at what you do. Wow. Um, well, this has been amazing. So I have one final question for you, uh, which is how yes. all of our interviews the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? You know, it's, it's something that resonates with people that's, that's unique and doesn't feel like it's a, it's something that's been taken from and grown from other pieces. Like our world has been building off and growing other existing platforms and things that work, right? It's, it's building it bigger and better. But there are some things that come out, and I talk a lot about this, about the difference between, you know, like the opportunity that Uber created, which was taxis existed, getting a ride with someone existed, they just made it bigger and better, right? And that was, that was cool and it broke out. But what Airbnb did was take something that no one would have ever thought was going to be a good idea. Who thought you would want to let people come sleep on your couch to give you 50 bucks or whatever it was. Like the idea of that, of letting strangers come into your house and sleep on your guest room, it was so out there. And then that was not something that existed. It wasn't there before. And that creates a different side of what's in culture. And I think that's where people really value that is when you do something, you present yourself, there's something that you're doing that is outside of what is expected. That's what I think becomes unmistakable. Amazing. Well, this has been super, super cool. Like, I, I love this conversation because it's one of those that I think I'm going to have hmm. to go back into like a dozen times. Like, and I'm going to go reread your book again now after this conversation. Oh, so. yeah. That's what I need. I need some book sales. Yeah. So speaking of which, uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything that you're up to? Yeah, you can go to the3minuterule.com and get all the connections there. I'm at brantpinvidic.com or any of the social media places at Brant Pimvitic. So I'm easy to find and always happy to, to in, interact and engage with people and help out. I'm really excited to do that. So yeah, I'm easy to find, get copy of the book. And um, I think it'll help a lot of people. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.